Well, we are thankful this morning for the opportunity to have Mitch and Jenny Hoskins and their family with us. Um, Mitch and Jenny are on furlough, which is our uh, home assignment, a time of refreshment, as has been prayed for this morning. Um, but for those of you who are newer to West Cannon and haven't um, seen or heard about their ministry, uh, it's been a few years since they've been here. Um, they, uh, Mitch began attending West Cannon as a freshman in high school and was a member here until 2001 when following college took a job in Tennessee. And then in 2006, while in the Ethnos 360 missionary training program, um, West Cannon became part of their support team and uh, began supporting Mitch and Jenny. They left for the field uh, of Papua New Guinea, um, also known as PNG for short. You may hear that um, in 2007. Um, they began, both, both Mitch and Jenny began as teachers at Numenoy Christian Academy. And then in 2013, Mitch was asked to take a role in management and administration and for the last nine years has served as the Director of Support Services, giving leadership to the organization's efforts to meet the physical needs of their quite large missionary team, over 360 adults, um, plus at least half as many, at least that number of children as well, um, in uh, supplies, transportation, housing, medical, and education, as well as their church planting partners across the country. And that is a multinational team. Uh, so quite a, a large endeavor. Jenny has managed the church development print shop, producing liter literacy resources, drafts of translation, and teaching resources for the churches, as well as continuing to teach at NCA, caring for five growing boys and supporting Mitch in his responsibilities. Uh, they've been based in Cedar Springs, and they've been here a lot of Wednesday evenings, so hopefully some of you have had a chance to meet them. But for those of you who haven't, um, we look forward to having Mitch open the Word of God for us this morning, and we look forward to your sticking around for the Sunday School Hour when they share a ministry report. Mitch, please come. Uh, it's always emotional for me to be back at West Cannon. So many of you have poured into my life over the years. So many folks that I went through high school with here are still here. So many people that were Sunday school teachers and invested in discipleship in my life, friends. And so it's just a, it's really sweet to be here with you and be able to spend this time. We, um, we're back from Papua New Guinea for a little a little bit of a time, a refresher, a chance to report back, and we do look forward to doing that in the Sunday school hour. Um, I just want to express again how grateful I am for the last uh, 17 years of partnership, as you guys have uh, been a key part of sending us to Papua New Guinea, uh, a key part in uh, supporting us financially and praying for us, sending Pastor Doug and Kathy to visit us in 2011, and Papua New Guinea is the end of the line. Like, you don't travel through there to somewhere else. And uh, we were really glad to be able to spend some time with them there on the ground in, in kind of our world. And uh, it's a little bit like time travel coming back to the U.S. It's not just traveling to a different place. It's an entirely different world. And I think we're getting our feet under us once again uh, here. But um, this morning, uh, right now, we're going to spend some time in Acts chapter 3 and 4 in the Word of God and see uh, what we can uh, be reminded of this morning that God would have for us to apply as we go out. We noticed on our last home assignment in 2018 and 19 how much this subject that we're going to talk about this morning came up as we traveled around the U.S. We visit uh, different churches every two to three weeks. We're traveling around, and everywhere we seem to have a recurring conversation. Uh, we've noticed it even more since we've been back in the last five months, and again, uh, we're, 
We're kind of oddballs now in American culture. We've been overseas long enough that we're still trying to figure things out here, but it, it, it is uh, interesting that we, we see the trends happening. And that is that a lot of people we're talking to in the churches across America are asking questions about what does it look like? Like, how should we respond to people that are hostile toward the gospel? There seems to be this sense, whether real or not or perceived, a sense among God's people here in our home country of... Uh, of change happening, of greater hostility toward Christianity and toward the gospel and toward the implications of Christianity in our lives, sometimes coming from family members, sometimes in the community, sometimes feeling that's coming from the government or leaders in a society, that the culture is swinging and that there's this, this challenge that may have been there before, but it seems to be coming to the forefront. It's coming out in conversations everywhere we go, in all kinds of different places, in all kinds of different contexts, rural down in the southwest in Arizona, in the, in the big cities. It doesn't seem to matter. And God's people are asking these questions. How should we live? How do we respond? How do we live when we're around people who are not tolerant of the gospel? In our neighborhood, on the job, in the public square, and both um, even in our own family sometimes. Now, there's lots of different reactions to that. Some people are discouraged. They're seeing changes happen inside and outside the church, and they're feeling like, oh, like we've lost, right? Others, they're looking at what's happening, and they're worried. They're anxious. They're fearful. How do we go about living as a Christian, not knowing who's going to be offended, and they're going to be upset, and there's going to be a drama, and there's going to be problems? How do, how do I handle that? Others are pretty frustrated. They're pretty angry about that. And so hostility from those outside the church is met with hostility from those within the church. How should we respond? How do we deal? We're living in a culture where people are freely antagonistic toward the gospel. And so as the storm clouds seem to be gathering for the church in the West, we still do have great freedom. How are we going to respond to that as we see that? And it's not something that's unique to Western culture, American culture. Opposition, rejection, conflict with unbelievers is very common in Papua New Guinea. In fact, as we send our missionaries into church planning process and they learn the language and the culture and they begin to teach people to read and write and they begin to give them uh, copies of the Scripture and they begin to teach them from eternity to eternity from the creation of the world all the way through those last days when God will create a new heaven and a new earth. What the story, the meta-narrative of Scripture. Boy, people come to faith in Christ. And then we go back and we teach it again, this time emphasizing the truths that are for believers as the Holy Spirit now lives within them. And as they're beginning to understand these truths that they had not known before. No one had ever told them in their language. And they begin to understand now their identity as the church, the called out ones of Jesus Christ. And they begin to form that unity. And the culture around them inevitably begins to say, no, you're not going to do that. No, you're breaking clan loyalties. You're putting your, your trust and your faith in these beliefs above and beyond the traditional beliefs. We can't have that. And pressure in the society comes. And challenges come to the church. Some of them even resulting in physical persecution at times. And that young church 
with so little of the New Testament in their language, clings over and over again to the book of Acts. As they begin, that's the next book that we cover, the book of Acts. This is the life of the church. This is what God's people are to be. And so I want to just take a moment and look in Acts chapter 3 and walk through the story in chapter 3 and and, uh, the first half of chapter 4, and then look at some simple truths that I hope will encourage us today. Because they're not new truths. There's nothing that, you're, that I'm going to cover today that you're going to say, aha, I didn't know that was in the Bible. But to, to cause our passions to be inflamed for the glory of Jesus Christ to be known, for His gospel to be proclaimed, that is my desire, to encourage us in that. That whatever the culture does, we have Jesus and that is enough. And He has given us a job and a mission to do, to make His name known to make much of him in whatever culture and place that he puts us and have the opportunity as his people, the privilege of doing that. And so, as we begin, let's open our time in prayer. Lord God, you have redeemed us to bring you glory. And we readily admit that we fail to do so in so many ways. We need to walk by faith, and yet so often we find ourselves walking by sight. And when we face hostility and challenges and difficulty, when people don't want to hear the truth of your word, we often find ourselves uncertain of what to do, dealing with the emotions that come with that and wondering. And so, God, would you strengthen us today by your word? Would you give us unity to face the challenges of our time? Would you open our eyes through the example of Peter and John this morning as we read your word and help us to see the glory of Jesus Christ in the text. Help us to see what you would have us to do in the days ahead to make much of him here in West Michigan and around the world. Your plan is for your people to share your good news. So help us to do that as we carry out uh, this mission that you've given us in the world today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For context, as Pastor Dave's already mentioned, Jesus just returned to heaven after his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. Pentecost happens, right? Fifty days after, the Holy Spirit comes to God's people, and that changes everything. Suddenly, Peter, who's scared of a little servant girl, is standing up in the public square declaring Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And everything is different. Three thousand are added to the church. And we read that the people of God are meeting daily in the temple courts. They're going to the Jewish temple, gathering together as Christians to worship Jesus Christ as Lord. And so let's pick up the story in, uh, in verse 1 of chapter 3. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, about three in the afternoon. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that's called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. And seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. And he said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. So Peter and John, they're headed into the temple. They're going to worship. This lame man has friends who bring him there so they can ask for money to take care of himself. And it's a good strategy, right? Hit them up coming and going from church. That's, people are in a frame of mind. They've been worshiping God. They're going to be more generous. And so that's, that's what he's doing. And Peter and John are just going about their daily business. 
They're just living a righteous life, honoring God, worshiping Him, right? They're not social media influencers who set up a flash mob to get a bunch of attention by creating a scenario. In fact, they're walking past Him, and He initiates the conversation with them. And so, this man expresses his need, thinking that his need is material, financial, apparently without even looking at them. I don't know if this was a sign of humility and that he's just bowing his head and asking for help, or if he's just so used to asking everybody that goes by, he's just doing his thing and whatever. But he's not actually paying direct attention to Peter and John, and Peter says, stop, look look at me. And in verse 6 through 8, we read, Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them walking and leaping and praising God. Supernatural miracle occurs. And this man, who we read later, has been sitting here for 40 years Right? An entire generation of people have walked past him in and out of the temple to worship. They know him, but suddenly they've never seen him like this. He's walking. He's leaping. He's praising God for what he's done. In verses 9 through 11, all the people saw him. They've never seen anything like this, and they begin worshiping God too. They couldn't explain what had happened. And Peter takes advantage of this opportunity as they gather around this man and around Peter and John saying, what just happened? To preach this message, the heart of which is found in verses 13 through 16. He says to them, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one. And you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God had raised, raised back from the dead. To this were witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. That's the heart of the message that Peter communicates to them. You killed the Christ. But you didn't thwart God's plan. In fact, he's going to go on and say, you fulfilled it. The Old Testament, the rest of his message is about how the Old Testament prophets said this would happen. That this is exactly what God had predicted and planned. And so there it is. Thousands of people are hearing this. They're witnessing this with their eyes. A crowd has gathered. And suddenly the religious leaders have a problem. And they come on the scene. Verses 1 and 2, as we read earlier, they were speaking to the people, the priests, and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. I love this translation. Greatly annoyed. Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So they show up on the scene now. Anytime a big crowd gathers in the temple complex under Roman rule, there's a risk of a riot. And the Sadducees in particular, who are in charge of that, have a vested interest in keeping the peace, right? They've got this kind of, they taunt with Rome, they get along, they tolerate each other, and the agreement is, and you're going to keep the Jews in line. 
So they show up on the scene, and there's a huge crowd, and Peter and John are right there in the middle of it, and they're not happy. They are greatly annoyed. And they're greatly annoyed for two reasons. The first one is that these guys are teaching the people. That's what it says. They're upset that they're teaching the people. Now, why is that a problem? It's a problem because the religious leaders are the ones who are supposed to be teaching the people. It's a problem because we're going to read later that these are uneducated common men. These are fishermen. What is going on? Who do they think they are? What's their pedigree? What seminary did they come from? Whose authority are they speaking on? And that really is the root issue. What is the authority by which you speak in a place where all these learned men of theology are already given the position? The second problem they have is that they're proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And if you know anything about the Sadducees, one of the distinctives of their theology is there is no resurrection of the dead. They argued with the Pharisees about that all the time. In fact, over in Mark 12, which we won't turn to and take the time with, they try to trip up Jesus by giving him hypothetical scenarios. And of course, fail miserably in the process. And Jesus tells them point blank, there is a resurrection of the dead. And so, they're upset. They're upset by the source of authority and epistemology. How do you know these things are true? And they're upset by the content of the message because it collides with their teaching. And so it's, it's offensive. And I would suggest that the same principles are at stake in our world today. Hostility abounds toward Christians because of the source of authority or truth by which we speak the message. What is the source of authority that allows you to say in a postmodern culture that what you're saying is true? And therefore, what I believe is not true. Who is your authority? What is your epistemology? How do you know what you know? And as Christians, in a biblical worldview, we have great certainty that the Word of God is truth, and that it's for all people in all places at all times. And that collides with the view of many of our neighbors and friends in the community and around us outside of the church. And the message itself of the gospel is offensive. The content of the message is offensive. And we're going to come back to that further on in the text. And so both the issue of authority and the issue of content of the message are relevant for us today. We're going to run into conflict with the world over these things, just as Peter and John did. In verses 3 and 4, it says, And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day. For it was already evening, but many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. So, of course, they show up on the scene. Peter and John are teaching. They're carrying out their ministry. And rather than figure it out, just arrest them. Like, let's get out of the situation. Just arrest the people that everyone's gathering around. They lock them up, and they're going to bring in the council, the Sanhedrin, the 70 rulers of Israel, mostly Sadducees, some Pharisees involved. And we'll get them together. We'll have a hearing, and we'll figure out what we're going to do with these guys. So they do that. Peter and John head off to jail. But the message has already been proclaimed. And the Spirit of the living God is already at work. And 5,000 believe. And the church is growing. And the message is spreading. And there seems little that the religious leaders can do about it. 
In verse 5, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked them, by what power or by what name did you do this? So right away, these are the, the usual suspects. These are the same people that were having an inquisition with Jesus just a couple months before. And these are the same people that murdered him. So the stakes are high for Peter and John. They're in front of the same people again, the high priest and his family, and they're being put on trial. And the number one question is the question of authority. By whose power are you doing this? What is the authority by which you're carrying this out? Now, it's important to note that in Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5, the rulers of Israel are actually given the task of making sure that if someone shows up doing signs and wonders, that they actually do inquire into what's happening. It is the job of the religious leaders to ask these questions. And they are to take the content of the message and line it up with Scripture. And if the content of the message does not line up with Scripture, then they, the death penalty is on the table. Execution is what the Old Testament prescribed. And so again, this is high-stakes stuff. And Peter and John are on trial for their lives. Verse 8-12, through 12, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says to them, rulers of the people and elders. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, then let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that the, was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved. There's no one else but Jesus. Peter answers in the clearest terms possible. Remember, Jesus himself has already promised them personally in Luke 21, 12 through 15, that God would give them the words to say when they face situations like this. But before all this, Luke, Luke 21 says, but before all this, they will lay hands on you and they will persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand on how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Jesus had just promised this to them previously. This is going to happen, and when it happens, I will give you the words to say. Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, the indwelling Holy Spirit, Jesus fulfills his promise and gives them the words to say, to speak with truth. And they do not dodge. He doesn't equivocate. He doesn't shade things. He doesn't try to extend his life or well-being by compromising the message. He doesn't try to avoid it in any way, shape, or form. He wants them to understand the message, whatever the consequence. And he states clearly that the authority and the power to heal the man came from Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And then for good measure, he adds, whom you crucified. And then he says, whom God raised from the dead. Again, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. Every single part of his answer is offensive. Not how he says it, but what he's saying. This is the truth. Peter points out 
that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Again, offensive to them. Psalm 118 says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. The Old Testament prophecy that they religious leaders were fully aware of. He says, you guys blew it, but you fulfilled what God promised would happen. The only hope for mankind, every single person, Jew or Greek, every language, every tribe, every culture, every time, there's only one way. It's exclusive. It's narrow. It's Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Only Jesus saves. And the importance and the value of making this truth plain to the people of Jerusalem was greater than the value Peter placed on his own life. And it was greater than the value for John. The Holy Spirit empowered them to speak the truth boldly. Only Jesus saves us from God's wrath, from our sin, and from eternity in hell. Only Jesus. Narrow, exclusive, and offensive to the hearers, but truth. And in verse 13, we read, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. There's only one explanation. Again, just a couple months ago, they were running for their lives. They had scattered. They would not, they actually lied, Peter did, to avoid being associated with Jesus. Completely different. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. However, they did miss it a little bit, right? Past tense. They had been with Jesus. No. The Holy Spirit has come. They are with Jesus. He lives within them. He empowers them to carry out the mission that he gave them to do in the world. They had killed Jesus, but Jesus was still there. Lived out in the lives of his followers. Proclaimed in the truths of his word. We don't have time to go in depth into the rest of the text, but again, it goes on. There's so much richness in the text. Peter and John politely but firmly refuse to obey the Sanhedrin when they're ordered to stop preaching in Jesus' name. Politely, yes, but firmly. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So they were threatened and they were released because the religious leaders... Didn't know what to do with him. The lame man is standing right there. The crowds believe this was a miracle that only God could do, and they're right. There's, if they were to take out punishment against Peter and John, man, that would cause a riot. That would cause the very thing they're trying to avoid. So they feel their hands are tied, and they release them. And Peter and John go back to church. They go find God's people and share with them what's happened. And we see them then, a beautiful prayer as the church gathers. And they pray that they would be removed from the persecution they're facing, right? No. They pray that they would have boldness to continue proclaiming the truth of the gospel. Living as gospel people in a host among hostile people. And then they get an answer to their prayer and in the form of an earthquake. While we were in Papua New Guinea this last term, we had two pretty big earthquakes, a 7.5 and a 7.3. We were actually in church when the 7.5 hit, and I was watching the cement floor of our gymnasium roll. It was, it was, it was a, a, quite a shock. 
And there's not really anywhere to go or anything to do at that point. You just stand there and wait it out. And uh, that wasn't in direct answer to prayer. <laughs> I can only imagine what the early church felt as they're praying for boldness and an earthquake breaks out, right? And it says that God answered their prayer. And it says they continue to speak the Word of God with boldness. Now, as we ponder God's Word this morning, I want to note three very simple truths from the text that are instructive to us individually and to the church collectively. The first is this. God's people are people of good deeds. Characterize us. People of good deeds. Peter and John are on their way to church. A lame man reaches out to them, and they're ready to respond. Now, I know they responded supernaturally by healing him, right? Supernatural signs and wonders done by the apostles to authenticate the message of Jesus to the Jewish people beyond what you and I are empowered to do and doing today, right? But the principle remains, and that is that the good deed that they did is what brought attention to the message that they then proclaimed. In fact, Peter says we're being put on trial for it, right? In verse 8, he says, uh, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, that's why we're here to what we're talking about. Let me explain where that comes from. And he uses that as a launching pad to the gospel. You and I have every opportunity to do good deeds in the name of Jesus Christ, privately for the benefit of others and publicly before the eyes of others. Peter makes clear that purpose in 4.9. In other words, the good deed was done so that you will know and believe in Jesus. That's what he says. It was done on his authority. It was done on his power. It was done for his sake. Drawing others toward Jesus by the good deeds done. Matthew chapter 5, 14 through 16 says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Right? This is Jesus talking. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see what? Your good works. And then they're going to give glory to your Father in heaven. Romans chapter 12 goes even further. It's very specific. We won't turn there, but we should bless those that curse us. We should feed those and give water, drink to our enemies. We should do good to those who do evil to us. We should meet their hostility with grace and love and mercy. The good deeds done in Jesus' name are an opportunity to turn the attention of the world to the message of God. Some, like the religious leaders, are going to ramp up their scrutiny, right? They're going to pressure those who are preaching the gospel. They're going to try to get them to stop. But others, like 5,000 that day, place their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. You and I today, this week, have the opportunity to live out our faith by doing good deeds in a world that is dying, in a world that is desperate, in a world where they're going to pay attention to those things because they're not normal. Living out good works before an unbelieving world turns up the volume on the gospel. It makes it easier to hear. The Mibu Church understands that. Many of you know about the hardship the Mibu Church has faced over the last two years. Uh, a gang of young men, about 150 in number, 
basically started terrorizing that part of Papua New Guinea. And out in the middle of the mountain ranges with no roads and no government services, no police protection, is a little tiny hamlet of Mibu people, a couple hundred of them that live there. And all the hamlets in the surrounding area, the gang just started showing up, making an offer that could not be refused. You're going to give us your pigs, your money, your young women, or we're going to burn the place to the ground. And the Mibu church, though threatened, refused to give in. And in the course of events that happened, uh, they ended up uh, being held hostage for a time, fleeing into the jungle, abandoning their homes, having their places looted, and they got off better than a lot of villages, which were burned to the ground completely. Um, people were killed at times, places. It was very, very challenging for everyone in the Nankina Valley and that part of Papua New Guinea. It was very challenging for the government, who made good faith efforts to try to, to bring peace, to stop the violence, to put an end to it, sending police by helicopter out into that area. And they went to Mibu because that was the only place with communication for many, many, many miles. Uh, we have an HF radio in there, and they were able to communicate out. And so... In light of that, all of the refugees from the surrounding area, as they lost their homes, as they ran in fear, were living in the jungle, they had lost their gardens, they started going to Mibu because that was the one place there was protection. And the Mibu church, though they themselves had suffered greatly, saw an opportunity to bless the people around them. They looked at that and they said, we've been praying for all these surrounding villages, we've been trying to figure out how to share the gospel with them, and God has heard our prayers and brought them to us. And so they worked with the government, with Christian nonprofits, to try to get food, temporary shelter, clothing, people who had nothing um, but what they were wearing as they walked into the village and try to provide care and help and share medicine and treat wounds and all that was involved. And those good deeds did indeed turn up the volume on the gospel. But not only... Should we be people of good deeds? We are people with a message. We have something to say to the world. That's the simple truth, but it's so important. It's profound. We have something to say to the world. Something that should burn within us. Our message is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It's the good news of the gospel. It's the best news that this world has ever heard or ever will hear. It is the only hope for all of mankind. And we have it an unlimited supply, ready to be shared with anyone who will hear it, as those who know Jesus Christ. What value are we placing on the gospel? We are people with a message. Peter and John don't hide anything in that message. They preach the full offense. They want to make sure that it's heard. They were not personally offensive, but the message is. In fact, they were quite polite about it. But the message of Jesus, the good news, is offensive and it is exclusive. There's salvation in no other name. The gospel leaves a mark. It has to do its work in our lives. It's not only offensive to unbelievers, but let's be honest. As believers, when we're reminded of the gospel, doesn't it sting a little? You're not enough. I'm not enough. I can't measure up. My pride that rises up is deflated daily. We are insufficient of ourselves. Our best actions, 
There's filthy rags in the sight of a pure and holy, spotless, righteous God. The message is offensive, but it is not only offensive. Well, first, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1 clearly states this, for since in the wisdom of God, the world didn't know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. What is he? A stumbling block to the Jews, a folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. All of us were in that boat as enemies of God, thinking it foolishness. Hostile toward God, who responded with mercy and grace toward us, pursued us, drawing us into his family. And so the message of the gospel begins by saying, I'm not enough. I'm a sinner and I'm in need. I don't measure up. I need Jesus. These truths humiliate our pride, and they drive us to look outside of ourselves to Him. But the message of the gospel is not only offensive, it's also delightful. Again, it's really good news. Like, we can grow used to the message of the gospel, but living among a people who don't know the gospel, who haven't understood it, their response is that it's really good news. I don't have to say the right things to make the spirits happy. I don't have to live my life in fear of what's going to happen. I can look to God and be right with Him, not through my own self-effort, but because of Jesus and His righteousness. And no one can take that away from me. That joy that comes into the life of a new believer when they recognize that, let us not grow used to it. Let's not take it for granted, but rejoice in it this morning. In 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21, we have these glorious words. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the gospel in a verse. It's the great exchange. It's that we get the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself, and he takes upon himself our sin and our shame. He gives us the ministry of reconciliation. He gives us the message of reconciliation to proclaim to a world that needs to hear the truth. And that is the greatest privilege of our lives. There's nothing else that compares to that. He didn't have to use us as part of that. His plan didn't have to be that we would share that message with our neighbors. That is a gift to us, that he allows us to be a part of it. And so we have a message to preach. The Headwater Gang has still not been brought to justice almost two years later. The Mibu Church still lives in fear that they might attack on any given day, as do the people that live across the Nankina Valley. Things have calmed down, though. There's been much less activity, and they're still working through in cultural ways, which are quite complicated, how best to go about resolving this situation. 
But in April of this year, Ceci, one of the leaders of the Mibu Church, wrote a letter on behalf of the Mibu Church to the gang members themselves. And a letter in Papua New Guinea culture, which is largely not literate in those rural areas, is a very important, significant event. Speaking on behalf of the Mibu uh, Church, uh, Jeff Husa reposted this, uh, one of our missionaries among the Mibu, not long ago. He said, a couple weeks ago, the church in Mibu felt led by the Lord to write a letter to the leaders of the Headwater Terrorist Gang. In this letter, Ceci put forward the abuse and destruction the Mibu village endured at the hands of that gang. How even as they kidnapped girls, they killed and ate livestock, they took huge sums of money, not to mention the wanton destruction and theft of so many of their material possessions. And yet they still left Mibu without the very best thing, right? The good news about how God had made a way through His Son Jesus to be made right from their sin. The Mibu church was so burdened for these people that despite the wrong that had been done to them, they felt they needed to reach out and say, you, you left without the treasure. You didn't hear God's talk. You didn't hear the message. The gang leader wrote back a response that you might expect from a gang leader. He said, we're stopping everything we were doing. If anyone among us continues to do those things, I'll kill them myself. We're no longer upset with the Mibu community. We know that we were the ones who did the wrong. Pass on the word to the police. We want to hear the teaching about God's word. Months later, that still hasn't happened. But we still pray and hope to that end. The situation continues to be challenging out there but at least it has been calm in recent months. One thing we do know is that the Mibu Church understands the value of the gospel. So, we're to be a people with a, a message that we're bursting to share, that we're zealous to share with our neighbors, right? The gospel is the greatest treasure we possess. There's nothing more valuable than knowing Jesus. Peter and John show us that to be a gospel people among a hostile people, we're going to do good deeds, we're a people with a message, and finally, we're people with boldness. People with boldness. In, verses, in verse 4, 13, it says, the boldness of Peter and John is what caused the Sanhedrin to pause and recognize that they had been with Jesus. Peter and John are released, and they gather immediately with the church, and they pray for boldness. God answers their prayer with the earthquake, and it says, then they went back out with Boldness. Romans 1.16, Paul makes very clear, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Despite the hostility we may experience in some places and times, and again, we still have great freedom, we should proclaim that message with boldness. It's God's power to save through the preaching of His Word. So, we're unashamed to declare it. Sin is devastating humanity. It's ruining people's lives. We must be bold to share with them the answer, the hope, life, and healing found only in Christ. When the Headwater Gang came to Mibu, they particularly targeted Sessi. He was a spokesman for the church. After being held captive in his house for a day or two, he managed to escape with his family at night. And running in the mountains at night is a bad idea. When someone with a bush knife is chasing you, you run. And he took a terrible fall. 
in the course of that, uh, he couldn't walk. His family was able to hide him and get him to a nearby mountaintop where we were able to fly him out and get him to help on our center. He spent the next several months recovering, trying to heal up. So I would see him on Sunday afternoons at the community soccer game that was going on. We would sit and chat and back and forth. One day he said, I'm going back to Mibu. And I said, well, are you worried about that? He said, well, I'm worried about my family, worried about the church. I need to be back. But about the gang, like Blongo, whatever God wants. The boldness he had came from simple rest in the fact that God is sovereign. He's the king. In the end, we are not victims. We are victors. In the end, we spend eternity in heaven with Christ, joint heirs with him. We have the gospel. We have everything we need, whatever happens in this life. And that's very freeing. We see Peter and John very free to preach the good news, whatever the consequence. We see the apostles, most of whom will die a martyr's death. We see that lived out, the freedom that comes in Christ, freedom from fear, freedom from anxiety, freedom from anger, freedom to proclaim the good news boldly. And so, as we come to the end, I just want to encourage us this morning to rejoice in the gospel. It is life-changing for every people in every culture and every time. We teach it to our children. We look for those opportunities, even to those who are hostile, like we were, to share the good news with them, unashamed, boldly, living righteous lives with good deeds so that people will hear the message that we proclaim. Let's close in prayer. Father, would you stir our hearts with your word? We're thankful for the godly example of Peter and John who love you and we're willing to proclaim your message. We're willing to stand for truth, doing good deeds, boldly proclaiming, and in so doing, showing the supernatural nature of what you had done. You made them new creatures. You empowered them for this mission. And God, today, for the church at West Cannon, brothers and sisters in Christ here in West Michigan, would you give us boldness to proclaim your truth this week? Would you help us to have eyes to see how to do that wisely and graciously, but fearlessly, and that we would live lives that bring honor and glory to your name and cause the volume on the gospel to be turned up, cause people to want to hear this message. Thankful, most of all, for your son Jesus. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.